Jordan asked me if I would come, and I was actually really excited to do that. Uh, I, I don't preach at Green Tree, uh, not really as a rule, but I do spend a fair amount of time working with um, mostly youth, uh, high school, college, and then a little bit beyond that as, as those kids kind of age out. And my experience with that group of kids, especially the ones that don't grow up in the church, but sometimes the ones that do, is that it is very hard to engage with them in a conversation about faith because um, they will tend to want you to do it without appealing to the Bible. Um, and that's not because, it's not really because they're ignorant of the Bible. I mean, they, they are. It's because they're contemptuous of it. You know, if you guys, if you've been around high school age, college age kids, you, you know what I'm talking about. They're actually hostile to something that they've never read. But on the other hand, you know, they're pretty curious and they want you to explain why do you believe what you believe, just don't refer to the Bible when you do it. And I have struggled with that, uh, but I've actually, over time, kind of come up with some common ground that I found, and, and usually that common ground is centered around questions they have about God, uh, because whether you are a lifelong Christian or you're agnostic or you're a seeker or you're an atheist, it doesn't really matter. You've got questions about God. Uh, you contemplate his existence. You contemplate his nature. And so that's actually an area that we can connect with even the most hostile person uh, is those questions. So what I would like to do today, and this is going to be kind of strange for a sermon. That's why I want to qualify. I'm not a pastor's. I'm not going to refer to the Bible uh, because I want to sort of engage with these questions about God, uh, and I want to do it sort of fair play for this, this, this person I'm thinking of that, that you guys are, I know, all encountering every day, uh, people that have these same questions but don't sort of allow you to go to that truth source, at least not yet. Um, so I want to center that on three common questions that I hear all the time, and they're questions that I have personally wrestled with at some time in my life. Um, before I do that, though, I, just, I do want to pray one more time for, for this subject for us. So let's just pray. Father, you have revealed yourself um, in your uh, creation, uh, but especially in your word. Your eternal power, your divine nature, those things are apparent to us, uh, but we're led astray by our sinful nature. Thank you for not allowing any one of us to remain lost for the call that you put out. Uh, but now, Lord, you're asking us to proclaim your name to those out there in the world, some of them who have their minds set very much against you, and especially against your word. So, Lord, Father, I would just ask that you would guide us today as we try to understand how we can reach those people uh, for your glory and help us to remember and understand that it is only by your spirit. Amen. So for me, this um, conversation starts a long time ago when I was about 10 years old. I grew up on a what used to be a farm, but a small one. So there was lots of outbuildings. It wasn't a working farm then. It was just a lot of, a lot of weeds. But we had cats in the barns. And it would be a stretch to say that they were domesticated. They were pretty wild. And there was always a few dozen of them. And I used to go out to visit with these cats. And they would always have their litter in the spring, and then there'd be a second litter in the late fall for cats that kind of went through the cycle twice. And so the, the second litter, usually they died. Uh, it was just too cold out there. And uh, I reached a certain age where I 
couldn't, I was no longer blind to sort of the tragedy of that. Like I realized how awful this is. But my parents had got to an age where they no longer saw the tragedy, right? So to them, it's just, it's, that's what happens. Um, so I found this clump of cats, one of which was not moving. And uh, I, I decided I was going to try to, 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 I guess, bring it back to life because it was, it was clearly dead. It was, it was pretty solid, like, I'm, you know. So uh, I, I took it inside, and I put it on the register that heats the house. And I had to click up the thermostat because my dad would always keep it, like, at 58 degrees. And so I, I clicked it up. I had to hide when I did that. I had to hide the cat because they would never want it in the house. Um, and you kind of have to understand that for a 10-year-old who's very innocent, um, putting a dead cat on the register is like, it makes perfect sense. So I, I put him on there. He warmed up. Um, and I waited. And I really, at that point, I remember this. I remember calling out to God. Um, and I did it in a way that I think you know, I think children do it this way, and I think adults do it this way when we're in great distress. That's the only time it ever happens. It's either with innocence or with great distress that you, you pour everything out to God. And I remember, you know, it was at that point that I, I encountered my first question of these three questions I hear all the time. And that question is, you know, can you give me a sign? And so what I remember saying is, God, you know, I will believe in you forever if you make this cat come back to life. I will never forget this, and my faith will you know, be unshaken no matter what happens after that. If you can just prove to me that you're there. And I, I'm going to take a chance and ask you guys, and I'm going to hope I'm not the only one that raises my hand, has anybody else ever had a point in their life where they've said, God, if you would just give me a sign, then I would believe, blah, 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 you know, whatever that is. Just raise your hand if you've ever kind of been through that. Okay, so, so it's a fairly common it's a fairly common request of God. Hopefully when we do it, we're not making him matter each time. Uh, but I asked that question at that time, and when I asked it, I thought, well, it's a pretty fair request. If you're up there and you want me to believe in me, why not a sign? But it's actually a pretty loaded question, because when we ask him for a sign, there's, there's a lot baked into that, that request, more than I think we realize at first. The first thing, obviously, is when we say we want a sign, what we're really saying is a miraculous sign. It has to be something amazing, something that breaks the laws of nature so that we know for sure that's the sign. Um, and that alone is an amazing request because you're basically, what you're saying to God at that point is, God, you know, I, I hereby um, uh, say that I'm willing to give up my place as number one in the universe and take the number two slot if you are willing to give me a sign that you're there, and you know it would really help if it was something miraculous. Um, but that's what we ask him to do. So God actually responded to my request uh, when I was 10 years old because his this kitten's little body did soften up on the register, and I remember this like it was yesterday, that he had a pool of water in his mouth because I think you know, internally, I think he had iced up and he was melting. You know, it was melting, so he, so I like had to turn him to the side and let the water dump out. Um, and I, I remember trying to kind of m m massage him, pump his chest, whatever, to kind of get things going. I remember trying to blow air into his lungs, and I was thinking, oh, you know, how, how big are a cat's lungs? You know, I don't want to blow his eyeballs out. I just, you know, <laughs> want to give him a little bit of life. But he did begin to breathe, and he started to, to live and to move and to have being. And, and I was so thankful, and I knew that that was God speaking to me. I, I had certainty. It wasn't a leap of faith for me. It was just a done deal. 
God had provided me the, sig- the sign that I asked for. And he had also, in doing that, he had provided it in a way that he had met the second requirement for any good sign when we say, give me a sign. And that second requirement is that it needs to be personal, right? As, as affecting as my cat story might be, it's my cat story. You know, that happened to me. For you guys, it's not really going to take. You know, within, within a couple of hours, you'll, you'll have forgotten it. Uh, you need to blow into your own dead cat and see it come to life before you will have the same experience that I did. Um, it's like when I was little, I remember asking this. I would say, um, God, if you would just make the sky just turn color for a second, just flash red, something, just between you and me, and then I'll know you're there. Um, so it's that kind of a sign. We want it to be personal. That I, I don't want to hear a friend tell me about what happened. But if we think about that, when we say we need it to be personal, if, if we're being fair, what we're saying is, I require a personal sign. Well, that means you require a personal sign. That really means everybody requires a personal sign. So when we say we require it to be personal, what we mean is we need to be universal and personal at the same time. Everyone has to be able to experience the sign personally. So it would be like me saying, God, I need you to change the color of this guy at, at the point where we can all see it happen and we can all kind of look at each other. Did you see? Okay, you know, we can all affirm that we saw that with our own eyes. But I know that from experience, I think that you guys would agree with this, that when we get these types of signs in our lives, because I think we've all had them, these signs that sure do feel like it's God breaking into our lives, the impact just fades. It does, I've, had, I've had incredible experiences that, uh, that within a month, two months, sometimes it takes a year, sometimes five years, it's sort of lost to memory. And then every now and then you recall it, and you're like, oh, yeah, I, you know, but, but the effect is gone. Uh, that, that my little catsicle story will be the same way for you guys. You know, it, it, won't, it won't impact you for long. Um, and I know that because it didn't, it didn't for me. I was there, and it didn't last that long for me. It didn't take, you know, a few months in a little child's life. I mean, you've moved on, right? And, um, I, and I had lost the impact of that sign. So when we, when we say we want a miraculous sign that's personal, but we also need it to be universal... We're really, we're really tucking a fourth requirement there with God. We're saying we need that sign to be somehow constant. We need it to be uh, repeatable, somehow constantly available, so that when our faith starts to flag, we can sort of bring it up again, and it can, oh, okay, another recharge. Thank you, God. So, so when we say, um, I need a sign, Lord, what we say is, uh, it would be like me saying, well, God, I need you to change the color of the sky. I need you to make sure you do it so everybody can see it, and I need you to do it every day because I'm going to constantly need the reminder of this. And so if you think about it, when we just say the words, give me a sign, what we're saying is I need to be miraculous. I need it to be something that breaks the rules of nature. I need it to be personal. I have to experience it myself. I need to be universal. I need everybody else to see it because that's only fair. And it has to be constant, just happening over and over and over every time I need a little bit of reassurance. That's impossible. That's impossible because of our own sinful hearts. It's not impossible for God to do. But, but God's doing it all the time. Like my example is, is the sunset, right? He's changing the sky every day for everyone. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And he does it like clockwork. And because he's met every one of my criteria, I discount it. I'm like, everybody sees the sunset. You know, give me something better. So I'm impossible to please with that request. So we have to kind of remember that when we, when we say, God, if you would just give me a sign, what we're asking for is not as simple as, as what it sounds like. If it's going to be a one-time unique event, we're going to 
we're going to let it fade. If, he, if it's going to be repeatable, we're going to get used to it. So it's kind of a dead end to say, God, will you give us a sign? But saying that, that should leave you with a, there's a very important question kind of hanging in all that. What happened to the cat? Right? That's the most important question. What happened to that cat? So what happened to the cat was, after it's kind of revived, I remember giving it milk through a straw, just like a drop. I think that was this whole meal that night, just getting it to one drop to kind of fill its mouth and then slowly drain down. You know, and I took that as a victory. And, I, and I'm doing all this covertly because my parents would say, get it out of the house immediately, get that thing out of the house. So I wrapped it up in like a little dish towel. I'll bet you money that I hung it back up after using it. <laughs> but I, I wrapped it up in a dish towel, and I put a desk lamp on it, you know, and kind of bent it down to create a little nursery for it, went to bed. Next morning, got up. He's still alive. He seems better. He's actually, you know, moving around. And I'm, like, so excited for this miracle. The impact is still very fresh. And I'm thinking I'm going to stay home from school this day because, of course, the cat needs to be nursed, and I'm going to be like, you know, Florence Nightingale and take care of it all day, and what an amazing experience. And my mom, when I had because I showed it to her, her reaction was, get ready for school, go, put that thing back in the barn. So I, I set it up in the barn with, a, with a, you know, a little box, and I kept it in its towel, and I put a bowl of milk with it, and I went to school. I thought about it all day, and that's a long time for you know, a 10-year-old. I got home, ran straight to the barn from the bus, went out to see how he was doing, and uh, this cat had got out of its little cocoon that I made to go to the milk, and apparently, from what I could tell, it stepped into the milk, turned over the bowl, splashed it over all over itself, froze, and died. And I found him solid. And at that point, I did not scoop him up and take him back in and start the process over. I, that was a clear enough message to me. Uh, and that was really the start of kind of the second big question that we all ask. And that question is, how can God exist in an evil world? Because to me, that's all that represented. It's just the evil pointlessness of the world. Um, so, okay, so I'm, I'm just a dumb kid. I don't understand that that question is also unfair. And, and there's th three you know, premises in that question that are just faulty when you think about it. The first one is that, of course, it blames God for evil that more often than not we're responsible for. So in the case of the cat dying again, I mean, this sounds harsher than I mean it, but it's because of my mom's heartlessness. She just was not connecting with what was happening there, and she said, put it out in the barn. That's why the cat died. Um, and I, I can apply it to big problems, too. World hunger. You can't blame God for world hunger. We have the productivity, the capacity, the technology to solve that problem. It's just an issue of human greed and apathy and inefficiencies in our systems and suspicion, all those things. But we tend to look at God and say, you know, what's the problem, God? So it's, it's really unfair to, to blame God for problems that we create or that we sustain. The second flaw in it is it accuses God of breaking a promise that he never made. The assumption when you say that, how can God exist in such an evil world? One of the assumptions you're making is, look, God, you promised me perfect happiness, and I am not perfectly happy. Therefore, you do not exist. Checkmate. You know, game over for God. Uh, but, of course, the problem with that is he never promised you perfect happiness. Uh, if you read the Bible, you know that's true. And if you don't read the Bible, there's no reason to assume that's true. What we're doing is, just out of our own pride and self-centeredness, we think, well, what God out there wouldn't have desires for me that are the same as my own. 
And so we just assume, why wouldn't he want me to be happy all the time? So the fact that I'm not happy sometimes must mean he's not there. Well, that's ridiculous, but that's how we feel. Now, the third flaw is the one I want to spend a little bit of time on. This flaw is important because I think it actually allows us to build a bridge with our atheist friend that's you know, maybe hostile to Scripture, maybe even a little hostile to God, even though he's never met him. That third flaw is that even asking the question, how can God exist in an evil world? That question can't be asked unless you accept uh, the existence of God. You can't logically ask that question unless you've already assumed the existence of God. And what I mean by that is you're describing a world as evil or perfectly bad. You can't describe the world as perfectly evil or perfectly bad unless you believe there is some perfect good. Otherwise, you wouldn't have that comparison to make. It would be like, could you describe a line as crooked if there were no such thing as straight lines? Or could you des describe the universe as dark if there was no such thing as light? So it's, it's only the existence in our understanding, in our perception, that there is a perfect good that allows us to even perceive that there's such a thing as evil. We would not recognize injustice in this world if it weren't for the fact that we know that there is justice. We would not recognize cruelty in this world if it weren't for the fact that we understand that there is kindness. It's the existence of the one that allows us to identify the other. So when we ask the question, how can God exist in an evil world? When you hear that question, you, you, know, you should feel permission to turn that around and ask them instead. You say, well, here's another question. Can evil exist in a godless world? I don't think it can. So this goodness that I'm kind of describing, it's, it's kind of hard to put your, own, your finger on what it is because we see it in so many different forms. We see it sometimes in the form of justice, sometimes in mercy, sometimes in loyalty, sometimes in honesty, but we know when we're encountering it. And these and other forms of that goodness, I, I'm just going to label them, and this is just, I'm just making up this term, universal standard. I think there are these universal standards out there. Uh, and by that, what I mean is standards or ideals that none of us learn. They're just innate. And yet all of us agree on them. Now, we don't necessarily agree on what they are. We, we argue about them. But we all agree that they're there. And from our limited view, we're trying to figure out what they are. But we all say that they're there. And no one taught them to us. So I'm, when I, it might help to say, here's what I'm not talking about. Um, you should tip 20% for good service, not a universal standard. Or uh, uh, you should respond to violent crime with an eye for an eye. That's not a universal standard, right? Th those are things that uh, change over time. Our, our ideas about whether that's right or wrong. In the case of violent crime, we might say sometimes in some societies, in some places, we might say eye for an eye. And sometimes we might say uh, tribal retribution. Sometimes we might say incarceration. Sometimes we might say rehabilitation. Sometimes we might say complete forgiveness. So how we're responding changes. But what's, what never changes is the fact that we believe that there is supposed to be a response when there's some violent crime. There has to be a response. So we, we universally agree on that. We just aren't sure what it is all the time. Um, another way to look at it is to take a concrete example. And I'm going to take an example purposefully that is uh, in the past because it'll be easier for us to all see and say, oh, yeah, I, I see it the very same way. The example I'm going to give is slavery, specifically the way it was practiced in this country in the South before the Civil War. Uh, that slavery, that institution, I could ask the question, was it wrong? And I think, I, I'm pretty confident everybody here would say, 
It's wrong. We could disagree on how it started, what prolonged it, uh, what were the causes um, for it to, to, to thrive, how exactly, when would it have been? Uh, interesting questions, but we would all agree it's wrong. Um, and if I ask you, well, was it wrong then? In you know, 1840, in Georgia, was it wrong then, even though the law said it was right? I think you would all say, no, it was wrong then. It was just as wrong then as it is now. And if I were to just hypothetically say, well, what if every single person in the United States at that time on that date said it's wrong, or I'm sorry, it's right, if they all said it's fine, would that make it right? And I think you all here would say, no, that has no impact on it. It's wrong. If the whole world said it was right, we know now it's wrong. And not only that, we know that it always was wrong, and it always will be wrong, just like it is wrong today. We might confuse ourselves sometimes and think, oh, well, we made slavery wrong when we passed that amendment or, or passed that law. No, we didn't. We made it illegal. It was always wrong. It just took us a while to discover that, right? It's something that's always existed as a truth, and we found our way to it. Some people took longer than others. Now, that's an example from the past to kind of help us understand that these universal standards, they're out there. But they're not in the past. They're, they're here now, even if we struggle with with either our atheist friends or just people across the aisle politically, we can struggle with, well, what are they? But we can sure agree that they're there. And I'll give you an example. It's in the form of a question. And the, the purpose of this question is to test, do you personally believe that universal standards of the, the way I'm describing it, do they exist? Because you might be thinking, I'm not sure that I, that I personally agree to that. Well, this question will help answer that. The question is, do the recent changes in public attitudes and laws in this country regarding, regarding marriage equality, do those changes represent moral progress or moral regression? So do the recent changes in public attitudes and laws in this country, do those changes, do they represent moral progress or moral regression? You just think about that. Now, if in your mind you're thinking, the way it's changed in the last few years, that represents to me moral regression. You've just affirmed a universal standard. Because what you're saying is there is some standard of behavior, there's some standard of conduct that I think us as a society here in the United States, I think we're moving away from it. I might not be able to describe it exactly, but I sense that we're moving away from it. It's there. The twist of this is, if you said, I actually think we're on the road towards moral progress. I think the laws that have changed represent a good thing, that we're moving in the right direction. Well, you've also affirmed universal standards because you're saying, I'm not sure exactly where we're supposed to go with this. I'm not sure what the final form looks like, but I know, I sense, I feel we're getting closer to it. I know we went from here to here and it's there. So people can be totally separate from each other on an issue and you can be a, you know, absolutely at odds with somebody on an issue like that. And yet in that disagreement, you just found this amazing thing to agree on that there are these standards that exist, that they're outside our control, that we may not be able to perfectly define, but we all sense that they're there, and we're all working towards them. We're just, we're just not great at it sometimes, but we all accept that they're there. So if that happens, and you have that discussion with somebody, you know what a fair question to ask somebody is like that is, especially if it's an atheist friend that you're talking to, maybe about that very issue about marriage equality and you, you, know, you agree whether we're moving away or closer to these standards, you might ask them, where do you think those standards came from? 
Or you might ask, when do you think they came to be? Like the idea that everyone should be treated the same, where did that come from? Was it, was it part of the Big Bang? Or did it not form until the planets? Like where did this, this thing come from? To answer that question, we have to remember that these universal standards are mental concepts, right? They exist in the mind. Uh, that might seem obvious, but you first have to, you just have to get in your head that you're not going to go digging in the ruins of Greece and find these things, right? They're not going to be under a, a rock. You're not going to find them in a file in Washington, D.C. These things, these concepts exist in our mind. Um, but, and this is what's, I think, really strange about them. They exist in our mind, but they're indestructible. We can't change them. So we try our best sometimes to change what you know, is right or wrong, but we realize, just like slavery, the issue of slavery, our perception of right and wrong changes, right? We're very fallible. But what is right or wrong doesn't change. We just kind of move closer to it. So we can't create these things. We can't change them. We can't abolish them. All we can do is decide if we're going to affirm them and move towards them or if we're going to ignore them because they kind of don't work for us. Stranger still, I think, is, is not just that we can't affect these things that supposedly are just mental concepts. We can't, we can't change them. We can't abolish them. We can't, we can't leave them. We are not only unable to shape them, they are shaping us, right? Those universal standards of right and wrong are affecting your behavior. They're affecting your attitudes. They're affecting your actions. They're controlling you. You're not controlling them. They exist in some way where, where they're in charge of us. The strange thing, too, if you think about it, is not only are they controlling us, but they exist everywhere. And you think, well, OK, what does that mean? Well, that means that the, like slavery is the, is the easy example. Is slavery wrong on Jupiter? Yes. Yes, it is. We're not even there yet, and I can already tell you it's wrong there. Uh, so these, these, these standards are not limited the way we're limited in space. They are omnipresent. They are everywhere across the universe. They already exist. It might take us 10 billion years to get there. They'll be there when we get there. They're also um, eternal, because there's never been a time when slavery, the way it was practiced in the American South, was right. It wasn't right 10,000 BC. It wasn't right in the 1850s. It's not right today, and it never will be. So way before it came into being, and way after it ceased to exist, it stayed wrong. These, these standards are eternal. So the question you, you ask yourself or you ask a friend that's struggling with, with the question about God, you might say, if these standards that we're thinking of, if they're a product of our own mind, how is that possible if they exist before us, they exist beyond us, we can't shape them, but they do control us, how is it possible to say then that they're from us? But if they are mental concepts, if they don't exist in physical reality, then they are the product of some mind. But like them, it must be a mind that's also eternal, that's also ever-present, that's also completely powerful, indestructible. That would be the type of mind that could create that sort of a standard that would have that impact on us. Now, for our atheist friends, we have to come, that's a lot. So we have to come up with a simple term for that, that author of those standards. And so for lack of a better term, we'll use God. So then it leaves us with the third question. 
The third question is, okay, the way you've just defined God, I've bridged the gap, right? You're like, I, I get what you're saying. Even outside the Bible, I, I get that. So that's a wonderful thing. But their next question is going to be, how could you possibly know that God? And that's a terrific question. How can we ever find this God? Because the way we've just described this force or person, uh, it's, um, it's ridiculous to think that our limited wisdom, our limited understanding and insight is going to discover this thing's innate nature. Uh, it's ridiculous to think that we're going to somehow hunt down and capture it or that we're going to outwit it and expose it and we're suddenly going to have proof for it. Um, that, that doesn't make sense, us in our limited form, that that would happen. On our own, I would say that there is not much we can discover about this thing that I'm calling God, for lack of a better term. The only thing I could tell somebody at this point is we can know something. What we can know is we can look at the universal standards themselves and we notice that they are preoccupied in our minds. If we think about these rights and wrongs, they're preoccupied with things like justice and mercy and forgiveness. That's all these, when you think of these universal standards, they all come down to, like in the case of marriage equality, it comes down to justice, and it comes down to uh, the, the, the nature of equality. Uh, there's not a universal standard for, like, sarcasm, you know, where it's like we all agree, oh, that's perfect sarcasm. So whatever this author is of these things, it seems preoccupied with these these issues, that tells me, at least personally, something about them. It's not an impersonal force because it cares about those very same things that we care about. But to get beyond that, to get beyond that very general sense, especially if we're trying to pull somebody along that hasn't been raised the way we have, at some point we're going to have to, we're going to, have to all realize that our wisdom sort of runs out of gas, right? We can only think this through so far. And at some point the key becomes humility. Um, a humility that says it's really not possible to search for this God. We feel like that's what we're doing, but we search for things that are lost, and God is not lost. We are. So the searching that's happening, we think it's us, and we in this room, we have felt it when God has searched for and found us. So we know what's really happening there. And we know that he has chosen to reveal himself to us. And we know that he has chosen to reveal himself much fuller than what I've just described in the last 10 minutes. We know that he's done it um, through the Bible. It would be ridiculous if you were having a conversation with, say, an, an unbeliever. And you were to walk through all this and that for them to say, you know, I kind of I get what you're saying. And it's funny, I was having breakfast with a 19-year-old atheist two weeks ago. And he said that very same thing when we kind of walked through this. He said, I, 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 you're right. He said, that, he said, that's the first time in my life somebody's ever said something to me that made me so, sort of suddenly like say, it's possible that this is all true. Uh, but, you know, his question was, how can I know more about this God? And that's where the humility is. You know, it is the Bible. You, he has to have the, the humility to accept that it's foolish for us to go looking for God in so many places, in philosophy books, in history books, and not in the one book where he said, I am revealing myself to you. So at some point, we just have to sort of bite the bullet and give it a shot. Um, and that's when I think we bridge the gap enough that we can say, we have the authority to say, you know, you need to just try reading a little bit of this uh, to have it take you further. And here's what I love about the Bible. 
the sign that we ask for when we say, you know, this is what it's going to take God for me to believe, that, by, th- that sign is the Bible. The Bible fulfills the requirements just as we laid out for that sign. The Bible is miraculous, right? It's written over uh, centuries, millennia, in different languages, dozens of authors, different cultures, and yet it hangs together in ways that, you know, no other book does. And you can read the best books, you know, um, you can read War and Peace, uh, Anna Karenina, all terrific stuff, Mark Twain, Charles Dickens, but none of them come close to the Bible in terms of the way it sort of refers back to itself and it all hangs together. And yet it's written by people that never knew each other, that lived a thousand years apart. Not to mention the fact that it's full of prophecy that does, foretells the future, which I've never seen another book that does that uh, at least uh, more than once. So the Bible itself, if you think, of a, if you think of, well, a miracle is a one-off event in history. It happens one time. The Bible meets that criteria. It's, it's, it's a unique event in history. It's also personal. It is written for you and to you, and when you read it, you get that very strong sense that this is somebody talking to you. It's also universal. We all have access to the same words and to the same message. So it, that, it, it meets that fairness rule. And then finally, it is constant. I love the fact that it's written, even though we've kind of moved beyond books, right? It's like now we want it electronically. But I love that it's written down because that's available to all cultures, all people throughout time. There are very few things that, and I'm not sure of any beyond writing, that do that safely. Uh, feelings don't do it. Visions don't do it. But the written word does do it. And the Bible is written for that very purpose. So whenever your faith is flagging, you need some assurance, it's right there and it's readily available. So it meets all of the criteria, the impossible criteria we set up. God went ahead and met those anyway. So even if our atheist friend won't entertain the Bible at the beginning of that discussion, eventually that's where we're going to get, where the Bible is going to be the full revelation of God. And I think that is exactly what God's plan was. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you revealed yourself not only in creation, uh, the world, our hearts, our minds, but that you didn't stop there, that you chose to reveal yourself much more fully in your word so that for um, just limited, fitful little minds, we could still know you so much more intimately than without it. Lord, I would just ask that you would equip each one of us Uh, today to draw many others to your word, regardless of where they're standing now, no matter what their hostility or their emotions are, so that in that we could be uh, an effective, uh, a joyful um, role player in the kingdom that you're building until the day that you come again. Amen.